I'm Dr. Molly Ness, host of the End Book Deserts podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host Greg Goins and my special guest today is Ken Shelton, a former middle school teacher and global keynote speaker who specializes in educational technology, technology integration, equity and inclusion, multimedia literacy, and instructional design. Ken Shelton is also one of the nation's leading voices for Techquity in Schools, the merging of educational technology with equity to teach culturally responsive and culturally relevant learning experiences in our classrooms. He's also an Apple Distinguished Educator and Google Certified Innovator. He also won ISTE's Digital Equity Excellence Award in 2018. Ken is a former Division I athlete playing football and running track at UCLA with aspirations of one day playing in the NFL. He ultimately worked as a model and actor throughout Los Angeles before finding his true passion as a classroom teacher. This was a great conversation, folks, with someone that I truly admire and respect as Ken Shelton has done some amazing work to create better schools for kids. Be sure to share out this episode with your friends and colleagues there in your school and give us a little boost this week by going to your Apple Podcast app on your phone and give Reimagined Schools a rating and review to help spread the word. This interview took place in mid-January of 2020, so you may hear a brief reference to uh, the new year, but it's a good one, folks. You want to settle in, turn up the radio, and enjoy this conversation with Ken Shelton. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is a popular keynote speaker and an expert in educational technology. A big welcome to Mr. Ken Shelton. How are you, sir? Woohoo! Yay! Happy to be here. I'm doing good. And happy New Year to all the listeners. I'm a little jealous. You're out on the West Coast there in LA. The, the weather's probably great. It's probably great golf weather today, isn't it? Uh, it's probably great golf weather about 355 of, of days of the year. Uh, and, and if you're willing to brave some of the elements like the occasional drizzle, then it's pretty, more, pretty much more like 360 days out of the year. So, Well, I'm a, a super big fan of your work. I've been following you for a long time. You, you have an incredible story growing up there in Los Angeles. Uh, you're from a strong family of educators yourself. Um, four sport athlete in high school, played football and ran track at UCLA with aspirations of playing in the NFL. Um, what was your experience like growing up there in LA? And you were obviously a huge success story, but I know as you looked uh, across the landscape, you had some probably friends and neighbors that didn't have the success you had. So what were some of those life lessons you learned growing up that have made you who you are today? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I would say the most important life lessons that I learned were from uh, my, really my parents, uh, more specifically my father, as well as my, my grandparents. And it was, 
you know, just around not accepting mediocrity in yourself. And, uh, you know, my dad used to always, always, always tell myself and uh, one of my brothers that, you know, if you're, if you're going to do something, then you go all in to do it. So it wasn't, uh, you know, like, for example, with sports, it wasn't like, well, I just want to try this sport. It's like, it was more of a, okay, if you're going to do it, then you're going to go all in with the sport. And uh, he applied the same principles for us with academics and just life in general. And yeah, growing up, for me, I grew up during the peak of gang violence here in Los Angeles. So I have many friends that were not, uh, their, their end, their pathway was not the same as mine. And unfortunately, some of them had different results than I have had. But ultimately, it's, it's uh, you know, it's something that I stress now in regards to the importance of education, and the importance of, you know, finding your passions and pursuing them, despite many of the obstacles that are going to likely be put in your way. And, you know, in all honesty, I used to share that with my students as well, you know, because here in L.A., you know, I mean, you think about it, it's Los Angeles, you have, you know, you have the Hollywood scene, uh, and then you have the music scene, I and mean, you have all these different things that people come to Los Angeles or descend upon L.A. to try to pursue, but all of them are difficult. And, and yes, as you mentioned, I did have aspirations to play football beyond college, and it didn't work out, and, you know, I mean, it's probably a good thing now, considering all the research we see around CT, among other things. But, but in in short, it it still is a function of you know pursuing your passions with such vigor and such enthusiasm that the predictable obstacles are are nothing more than learning opportunities. And in fact, instead of them being obstacles, they're more like hurdles, and you just got to get over. And we both know the good Lord puts us where we need to be. So you're, you're certainly in the right spot. So, uh, you know, after, um, you know, football uh, didn't work out for you, the plan B was to work as an actor and a model. And you're such a handsome guy. I can see how that, uh, that uh, worked out well for you. But it's been time you. as a middle school teacher. I think you taught 18 years, 13 years at the middle school level. Um, and doing a little prep work for our conversation today, uh, I, I ran across a video in which you said we have to teach kids uh, not only to learn how to fail, but to be able to take a punch. And I, I'm here in central Kentucky. I'm, I'm just a short one-hour drive from Louisville. And, of course, that's the home of the great Muhammad Ali. And we just celebrated the Martin Luther King holiday, and they had a lot of events at the MLK – or at the uh, Muhammad Ali Center, excuse me. Um, and I was just thinking, maybe it's my perception, but it seems like kids are just so much more fragile today than our generation – uh, I mean, our generation, we knew there were going to be hard knocks along the way, and we just kind of dusted ourselves off and dealt with it and moved on. But, you know, we, we talk about grit. We talk about all these things to get kids to, to just kind of battle uh, through all the things they're going to deal with in their lives. Uh, you know, if a young Cassius Clay wouldn't have had so many obstacles, we would have never had Muhammad Ali. You know, it, you, and you, you, bring up a, uh, you bring up a valid point that I think – as educators, we want to be mindful of, and that that is, yes, there are a lot of instances where um, our today's youth are not, they're not showing a degree of resiliency and uh, fortitude that is required to pursue things that are more difficult, whether it's their passion or not. But I also I also think it's important, you know, considering where you are, you know, I I'm I'm very familiar with um, and have done work in um, Jefferson County. So I know some of the challenges a lot of the kids have, you know, there in JCPS uh, among many other uh, county school districts. And it's not just there in Kentucky, which by the way, I love going to Kentucky. I, I do have to, have to uh, share that. I've, I've spent quite a bit of time there and it's not enough. 
But I think that also for us in regards to the use of the words grit uh, and failure, we want to be mindful of the fact that a lot of our students are exhibiting uh, the degrees of grit, resiliency, and overcoming failure just by making it to school every morning. And I've had, I had a lot of students that had, you know, challenges, whether it was based on living in economically challenged uh, neighborhoods or uh, some sort of societal structure, if you will, that created obstacles that just by them living and getting to school and doing their best in school, they were showing degrees of resiliency and grit that I don't think, uh, you know, you wouldn't apply that across the board, but I just think that in, for us as educators, we wanna, um, you know, again, like I said, be mindful of the fact that many of our kids, they're not, grit is not necessarily, oh, I failed a test and I'm gonna redo the test. Sometimes grit is, okay, I know that, that the, the data, if you will, uh, says that I will not be a college graduate by the time I'm 21 or something like that. And so I'm going to stay the course and do whatever I have to do to do it, uh, you know, within the context or within the structures or obstacles that I have to overcome. Uh, that is not a result of a choice that I have made. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, I would love for us to do more in regards to really um, getting a degree of fortitude in our youth that, that we would look at and say, okay, uh, these are kids that have, that no is not an answer. They're just, they're not going to give up, you know? It's yeah. Not. And I couldn't agree more. That's very well said. And we both know the harsh reality of the American education system to this day in 2020 is that your zip code really dictates the opportunities that you're going to have. And I know you're passionate about speaking uh, to that as well. Um, also this idea of, of labeling kids, the at-risk kids or, yeah. uh, you know, just talk about that a little bit, because I know that's one of your main talking points. It is. I, I, you know, education, there's so much emphasis on, on what I call the deficit model or deficit mindset, at risk, uh, remedial. I mean, all, if you look at a lot of the terminology that, that exists now, that even exists when, existed when you and I were in school, uh, grade school, middle school, uh, high school, it just, it creates, again, it creates this deficit mindset of you're less than or you're not capable of. And, and I really encourage educators to, you know, look at changing that terminology from a deficit model to an asset approach, which are things like, you know, um, if, if, if students, let's say a student, well, first of all, I'm with you. I don't like student, I don't like labels at all. I mean, labels are, they're so arbitrary and, and I can predict which students are highly likely to be labeled in a more favorable capacity than a non-favorable capacity. Uh, and that's even along race, gender, geography, all of those things. But I think that if we look at how we communicate with our students uh, and then what we communicate as an education, as an institution at large, there are ways that we can change the paradigm in regards to the mindset that we uh, essentially force upon our students. So for example, one of the things I encourage schools to do is instead of using the word at risk, just use the word vulnerable because ultimately they, those students tend to be more vulnerable to some of the societal structures that are going to adversely affect them. I had the privilege of working at my last school where I could see it right there in front of my face with each of my classes where, you know, I had students that came from families that made lots and lots of money, household income was a million dollars and students who came from households where it was like 30,000. But, but ultimately I could see where, you know, many of the, let's just say many of the base level needs of being seen, being heard and being loved, that was across the board. 
it didn't matter what their socioeconomic status was. And then I could see where, okay, in one student, they have the money, their parents could buy them tutors, buy them this, buy them that, at least to try to overcome those things. Whereas the students that came from families that uh, were more economically challenged, they couldn't do that. So I think it's important for us to look at, at our students in a capacity of some are more vulnerable than others. And a talk that I recently uh, heard that uh, he's become a good friend of mine. Uh, it was a keynote he did where he said, we need to look at our students as opportunities, not obligations. And I think that's just so important for us as educators that I know, I, I mean, look, I, I spent so much time in the classroom that I, I, I don't want your listeners to think that, oh, Ken is this speaker. He doesn't get it. He's never done it. I, I do get it because not every day is going to be our day. But if we go with the right approach in regards to uh, you know, nurturing our students and meeting all of their social and emotional needs, and, and like, like I shared, they, you know, every student is an opportunity, not an obligation, then we can help them identify some of the obstacles that they can overcome, but also respect and, and, and be mindful of the obstacles that we don't have control over. And, you know, I would make the argument, actually, that you would have a, a far greater perspective on what's really happening out in the field because you, you spend so much time uh, working, uh, either presenting or out in schools. And uh, a lot of times uh, we make the mistake of getting so focused, we want to stay in our lane. So whether you're in an urban school, you know, that's your focus. Whether you're in a rural school, you know, that's your focus. And you really don't think a whole lot about what the other folks are doing. But, you know, you use the term vulnerable. There are vulnerable kids, highly vulnerable kids in both of those settings, and we yep. don't talk about that nearly enough. Nope, we don't. And that's, that goes to where you, you had mentioned earlier as far as a lot of the things that I talk about and what I'm really passionate about, like you can start off with digital equity. I mean, I, I've seen it. I see it here in California, and I see it across the U.S. I even see it outside the U.S. One of the big things needs to be that all of our students need access. They deserve access. And I've seen it where you can go to an urban, economically challenged urban area and a rural area, and guess what? A lot of the challenges or obstacles are exactly the same. Lack of broadband access, lack of access to the appropriate degree of resources, lack of access to teachers for things like, you know, advanced placement classes, which you know, it's, it's part of the game, but the whole point is that it, it, it's all of the above. And yes, though the, the kids that are in our, in our many of our rural areas are just as vulnerable as the kids in many of our urban areas, but you don't see the connection made with that. And that's where I think in looking at, at solving some of those bigger societal challenges, as well as educational challenges, we have to look at it holistically, not, not as individual, um, not as an individual case-by-case -case basis, nor isolated in geographical silos. And, you know, I remember hearing the term techquity for the very first time. You were doing an interview with Tom Murray at one of the Future Ready School sites. And, uh, you know, there's so much in your Twitter feed. You can't keep up with all of it. But I remember watching that, and I remember just kind of stopping in my tracks and thinking, wow, why haven't I heard that term before? And how powerful is that as we think about, you know, leveling the playing field for everybody? Right. Yeah, I, it's a term that I use. So I did not come up with it. I still haven't been able to figure out who coined it first. But to me, it doesn't matter who did it first. I love it. And it embodies everything that I believe in and everything that, that, that I do at this point. And that is that you cannot have an equitable learning environment that is absent of technology. And that learning environment must be, must be an experience for students that is both culturally responsive and culturally relevant that supports their, their development of essential skills. And that's ultimately how I define it. Um, 
And then I, I will add that one other thing that I think it is not emphasized enough in schools, and that is that the more we use technology in an equitable and accessible capacity, the more we're able to make more meaningful cross-cultural connections so that, for example, the students that are in the urban areas can connect with and maybe even work together with the students in the rural areas because there are so many similarities. And I, I just think the more that we the more that we become a, a conduit for making those types of connections within the context of our curriculum, it benefits all of us in the end. It benefits society and it benefits all of us. And this is why with a lot of the school districts I work with, you know, I always say understanding doesn't require agreement. And, and I, I want to have a better understanding of someone whose experience doesn't mirror mine and someone whose experience is very different than mine so that that makes me not only a better person, but also a better educator. Yeah, and, and I think when we talk about technology, uh, I mean, anytime you brand yourself as an expert in technology, which you certainly are, I'm sure you get a lot of questions about what tools to use. But, I, I mean, we're way past time that that conversation has to flip to what the pedagogy has to be in the classroom. I've made the argument for a long time that the role of the teacher has to change. It, it's no longer, you know, you being the smartest person in the room lecturing 52 minutes you have to create ways to engage kids number one and then learn together use those tools that you have in the palm of your hand to be successful exactly the the tool should enhance the learning not be not be the driver of the learning and and yeah things need they things do need to shift i mean you know it's a it's again another thing i always share with educators be mindful of big data. I, I, I hear it so much. It just sometimes, I mean, if I had hair, I'd pull it out. But, you know, uh, it be, because the numbers, you know, it's, uh, you know, again, a very close friend of mine in a conversation. Big data, always true in general, but never in particular. And, and it just, I just see that, well, we got these numbers and we got this and all of these things. And we did the sampling of thousands and thousands and big data, big data, big data. And I always follow up with, I want another story behind the data. I want to know what's going on with the individuals because the more we, the more we look at data in a large set, if you will, the more we dehumanize what those numbers mean and really what the stories are behind those numbers. Um, I, I mean, I just, I see it over and over and over again where, you know, in schools, uh, you know, they'll say, well, our, our uh, you know, our graduation rate is, is uh, you know, is double what it was or it's, you know, it's up in the 90 percent. And I'm like, that's great. I want to know how the students feel about their learning experience or have they figured out a way to just play the game and they're, they're going through what, what I identify as the usual academic hazing to get the degree and then they're gone and then they're like, okay, I finally made it through that. I'm done. That, that's, no, that's no way to go through life. And, and education needs to do better with that. I, I, here's one. What if we were to change how we measure the value of schools, not by letter grades, and certainly not by test scores, by conducting exit interviews of all of the seniors? And let them rate, did this, was, was I seen, was I heard, were my needs met, do I feel like I was challenged appropriately? Do I feel like I learned something that puts me in a position to have life, college, career options once I cross that stage? Use that as a measure to value uh, to grade schools. And I think we would see a lot of things change very quickly. But of course, as you and I know, that's that's qualitative, not quantitative. And people want things in numbers because numbers are easy to tabulate. And then, of course, you can 
disaggregate and aggregate those numbers to serve any particular agenda. Yeah, and I'm still fascinated this whole it seems like the whole world's mesmerized by numbers. We we have to put a uh, label a kid with a number and it's all about test scores or how we can get kids up from novice reading scores or categories or whatever the case may be. Uh I almost I'm a big baseball fan. I almost think of it uh, in terms of uh, a professional baseball scout, when they go to look at a potential prospect, they're evaluating that person on talent, not mm-hmm. on, not necessarily on how many times they struck out that particular game, but they're looking at talent. Why can't we find a way to, to really make uh, talent and potential, um, you know, a, a bigger part of the conversation than just test results? Yeah, I agree. Well, because as you and I both know, I mean, I love baseball too. The scouts spend a lot of time, uh, you know, evaluating potential talent, whether it's at the high school or college level. And they do, I mean, you know, it's funny, you and I are talking about data and we both love baseball, which is a real big time number sport. But in the end, you know, it's, um, it still boils down to, you know, what is the story behind the numbers? You've got a pitcher. Let's say you have a pitcher that, you know, the data says oh, they can throw 90, 95 consistently and they've got a, a breaking ball that, um, you know, they got three solid pitches. They got their fastball, they've got their breaking ball, and then they have their, uh, their changeup and they can throw, you know, 95 and same motion and their changeup now cuts down to 80. Great. Those are good numbers. But then now let's go watch that pitcher and let's see, are they able to hit the target every single time with their pitches? Are they able to paint the corners? Are they able, you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's more to the story than just what the numbers tell. So with our students, I agree. It's, I would love for it to be a situation where we help and support students identify what their passions are, what their talents are, and then within the context of schooling, we support them pursuing those with vigor because ultimately we all will benefit from that. The kids will have a positive schooling experience. They will be able to identify how it supported them pursuing their passions. And ultimately, as you and I both know, if it's something that you're passionate about, then no obstacle is going to get in the way of you pursuing it. Yeah, and kind of to follow that, that baseball theme, you know, if you have success, you move up. That's why they have a minor league system. Uh, someone in, in rookie ball can move up to class A or class AA if they show great signs of potential. Uh, and the flip side is if they struggle and they're not there yet, they can take them back down uh, wherever they need to be. But, you know, in education, as we know, you know, all eight-year-olds have to be in third grade. And it doesn't really matter what they do throughout the course of the year. That's just the way it's always been. And that, that's another thing that just kind of drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's, it, it, me too. It's, a, it's an archaic structure that, you know, your age dictates your grade. And it doesn't matter if you are excelling or struggling. Your age is going to dictate your grade. And you get what you get. You don't get upset. Rather than having some degree of fluidity that, you know, if you have, like, to your point, an eight-year-old that, you know, is showing an aptitude that is aligned with a higher grade level, then why should they be relegated to the grade level that they're only in? You know, and, and, you know, it just, it, it's a very easy compartmentalized system that, that we unfortunately uh, are still in that is not responsive to the needs of today's youth or society in general. I mean, like, how often do you see a child that is um, ready for college at the age of 15? Is, is there more of an anomaly when 
I would think that might actually be more because of their age and you have to have this grade rather than, okay, at 15, you're showing an aptitude that is consistent with a senior in high school. Why don't we have create an evaluation system to determine that? And then if that's the case, then guess what? You can graduate early if you want. Yeah, and again, I think we're on the same page there and, and thinking a lot alike. You know, when I look at your Twitter profile, one of the, uh, one of the things that you have identified uh, is you are a visual storyteller. And, and I love that terminology. Get, what does that mean to you? And, and how does that guide your thinking when you're presenting to folks? So I, I've been a photographer for quite some time. Uh, I would say amateur slash pro-ish. Um, I determined pro, a pro-level photographer is someone whose uh, primary source of income is their photography work. So, and an amateur is they just do it because they love it. So I'm somewhere in between because I have been compensated for, uh, you know, some of the work that I've done, but, um, I just love using visuals. I just visuals bridge any, so many gaps, whether it's in language, accessibility, uh, uh, create more inclusive environment for understanding. I mean, you think about it in terms of, of if you go to a country where you don't speak the language, I mean, you're using visuals, i.e. the icons to navigate, you know, the airport spaces, the train station spaces, the bus station spaces, all those sorts of things. And I just think that it's easier. It's a lot, actually, let me rephrase that. It actually is more inclusive for us to create environments or situations for students to be seen and heard through visuals. And then, of course, the other skills come in, whether it's the reading, the writing, the speaking, things like that. But I just love using the visuals. They tell, you know, the, a picture is worth a thousand words. So, you know, I can tell you a multi-thousand word story in, in a series of a few photos. And, you know, I used to teach that. I used to teach graphic design. I taught film and video production. I taught photography. And I just, I could watch how the kids, they just their eyes would just open up and you could see it. You know, it's that nonverbal. I love, this is why I encourage educators, speaking of visual storytelling, think about how many stories are told through nonverbal communication. And I would just see the students literally light up when we would do these projects and they would say, okay, I have an idea and I know what kind of story I want to tell. And then they create a visual representation that is aligned with that story. And then they see how it's received. And it's just, it's so amazing to do that. And that's why I always encourage educators to incorporate visuals as much as they possibly can uh, within the context of their learning environment, which by the way, <clears throat> speaking of Tequity, that actually is a culturally responsive strategy. Because if you think about it, what are the top platforms that today's youth use to connect with their peers? Snapchat, Instagram, and more specifically, IG stories. And then now uh, number three, I believe, is TikTok. And then number four is house party. But those top three, what do they all have in common? They're highly visual. They allow for some degrees of customization and creativity. And again, this, the, their child is being seen and being heard. So why can't we use that in our learning environments to really transform what uh, what the outcomes are, and more specifically, and more important than the outcomes, is what the experiences are of our students. Yeah, you're spot on, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I work with a lot of uh, teachers who want to be principals, so aspiring administrative candidates, and, and we talk about this idea of if you're going to give a presentation, whether you're speaking at a conference or maybe it's a faculty meeting, it's really that TED Talk model. You know, you don't need to have, if you have 30 slides, uh, Number one, don't ever do that. But that tells me that you truly don't know the material. Uh, you know, the TED Talk model, and you've given a wonderful TED Talk. You want to check that out, folks. 
uh, on YouTube, uh, Ken Shelton's TED Talk. But, you know, you can, you know, put those images up there, find something that's going to help you tell the story, and then, and then use that as a way to engage your audience. I mean, right. well, I think we need to spend more time talking about that, too, and how we train teachers and school leaders. We do. Uh, and, you know, and, and quite frankly, that is some of the policy level work that I had the opportunity to do here in the state of California was around uh, that was one of the areas that we looked at was around what is the, what are the experiences in the certification programs uh, for being a teacher or being an administrator uh, here in California? Because I do think, you know, it's interesting if you if you look at education as a system. There are many components to that system that are self-serving and self-preserving. And that's why, you know, going back to what you and I had shared a few minutes ago, that's why we're still seeing many of the same dynamics occur in classrooms and in schools today that occurred when you and I were in elementary, middle, and high school. And that's one where for educators, we have to develop the awareness and the perspective that we have to dismantle some of those things because they, they, they weren't helpful when we were in school and they certainly aren't helpful now. And in fact, I would actually argue that they're even more magnified now because when I was in school, you didn't have the internet. I had a computer and I did stuff on the computer, but I didn't have the internet. And so that, 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 that not only does that democratize information, it, it, it liberates our ability to make meaningful, again, meaningful connections in varying degrees within the curriculum. I can talk to the author of the book that I'm reading in my English class. I can connect with a scientist for my science class. I mean, you can do all these things, whether it's through social media or even just something as simple as an email, which <laughs> imagine how archaic email is now, but it, it just, it needs to change. It really does. And, and if it doesn't change, then, you know, going back to my data reference, people are going to look at the data 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now and say, well, gee, things haven't changed. What's going on? So I think it does start with, you know, in fact, I say it's a multi-tiered approach. It's working with the teachers that are in the building now. It's working with the administrators that are in the building now. It's working with the aspiring teachers. It's working with the aspiring administrators. And then ultimately, when you make those changes, the student experience now changes because ultimately, think about it, and you've heard this, you and I both have heard this many times, a lot of folks that go into education end up teaching the same way they were taught. So you see, that's why it's multi-tiered. That's how we can break that cycle. And we really have to be more vigilant about, you know, doing just that. Otherwise, it will not change. And, and I think you and I are roughly the same age. So, I, and I tell people all the time, uh, if classrooms today look anything like they did when I was a student throughout the 1970s and 80s, we have a real problem. Uh, but unfortunately, there are still a lot of those schools that exist because, uh, you know, things just haven't changed and I you know education more so than anything else you could imagine uh you know has been slow to change and, and I still that's you know that's why we have the podcast and have these conversations so uh interesting to, to think about yes yeah I, I I hope that your listeners will you know I, I guess I would put it this way I hope that your listeners will hold a mirror up to themselves and say what what exists right now that I am perpetuating that, that needs to change, that's even something small. You know, it, it's not, you know, you, you know to, to eat an elephant, you gotta take it one bite at a time. And, you know, we're not gonna be able to change the whole thing in one fell swoop, but, but those little, you know, it's, I, always, I used to always say that, you know, you wanna have those small victories. And when you start to stack your small victories, that's when you start to have much more macro change uh, as well. 
Well, it's been a great conversation. I can't thank you enough for being here. You want to check out Ken's website at kennethshelton.net if you want to schedule him to come to your education conference or school district. You definitely want to follow him on Twitter. Great follow at K underscore Shelton. Um, as we wrap it up, I do want to give you an opportunity to have a, a final closing thought and maybe talk a little bit about uh, Educatalyst, which is something I know you're proud of. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm a founding partner of that. And just as we close it out, you know, um, the whole purpose behind Catalyst is actually, it's funny, it's aligned with everything we're just talking about. So Catalyst is a platform that is, um, it's free and it is a platform for school leaders. So principals, district level leaders, uh, and because it's a global platform, also uh, ministers of education in various countries. And the whole, whole idea around Catalyst is that that is a platform for you to go to connect with other leaders to look at, uh, there's four major challenge areas. There's equity, there's social and emotional learning, there's um, uh, learning space uh, and innovative technologies. And it's ultimately, what are some of the systemic or, or, or organizational challenges in those areas that you know, you've had difficulties trying to tackle or you need support in doing? And the whole purpose behind that platform is to connect leaders together to look at many of those organizational or systemic challenges uh, and, and through the support of each other, as well as crowdsourcing of knowledge and information, be able to come up with tangible, meaningful, and here's the key word, sustainable solutions. So it fits in with everything you and I just, just spoke on. And I had the privilege of, of emceeing the, uh, the launch event in Washington, D.C. last month. And I know that we had uh, launch events in Sydney, Australia, London, uh, London, England, and also Johannesburg, South Africa. So um, I would definitely encourage any of your listeners that are school site or school district uh, leaders to consider checking out the platform. They can reach out to me if they have any questions. I can help them out with that. But, you know, I hope that this conversation that you and I have had really will, uh, will be a nice catalyst, pun intended, for your reader, uh, listeners uh, in regards to, you know, what are, what are we doing to support each other and what are we doing to make meaningful change in education? Um, and then I actually want to add a side note because here's, what, here's where, and I'm getting goosebumps when I'm getting ready to say, um, I wanted to be on your podcast for quite some time, and I, I, this, is, this is definitely a privilege, and I think it's important, and I, and I want to be as clear as I can with this. I think it's important for your listeners to recognize that technology has put you and I together. You're in central Kentucky, and I'm in Los Angeles. You and I have different backgrounds, live in different areas, but think about all the ways that you and I could sit down and break bread together and identify what are our passion areas which they're aligned very closely. And how, how did we come to this convergence of coming from different backgrounds, having different experiences, and yet if it weren't for technology, you and I wouldn't be on this call, we wouldn't be having this conversation, and we wouldn't be fans of each other. And ultimately in the work that we do, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in a position to be supportive of each other. And I think that's the main thing I would love for your listeners to get out of this. And I would want that type of connection and experience to exist and occur for every single student in every single school everywhere well and thanks for those kind words it's truly been an honor to talk with you you're doing some amazing things and folks you want to check out ken shelton i mean he's 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 the real deal you want to connect you want to check out educatalyst so thanks for your time my friend thank you i thank you so much it's been a privilege thank you all right that's a wrap for another episode of the reimagined schools podcast and as always folks do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids